Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with Steve Flink, the Hall of Fame tennis writer, author of two books on my shelf behind me, The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time, and Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. Steve and I chat after every major. This time we go very, uh, very heavy on Novak Djokovic and the final against Kyrgios. We also hit on Nadal. Uh, the remainder of our discussion is about the looking back at kind of Wimbledon without points and without Russian and Belarusian players and just kind of closing the book on that topic because it really was uh, a unique major. And I think in a lot of ways we can have a more informed discussion about how everything went down now that it's in the past instead of kind of looking ahead um, and projecting how things are going to play out. So really great conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. Without further ado, here's Steve Flink. We are joined once again by Steve Flink, the Hall of Fame tennis writer for a traditional post-major chat after Wimbledon 2022. Steve, pleasure to have you on again. I always I always love that we don't have to wait very long between Roland Garros and Wimbledon. That's true. That's true. It was a quick turnaround this time. And, uh, and it was all, all told, I thought we had a very good Wimbledon across the board. How would you rate the final? Let's let's start with Djokovic and Kyrgios, a final we weren't expecting on the Kyrgios side of things. Novak, much less surprising. Um, did you did you feel like it it delivered in terms of quality? I did, I did because if you look back over the four sets, and I'm curious to get your see if you're if you're in accord with me. I mean, Kyrgios just happened to grab that early break at 2-all when Novak went for a big 111-mile-hour second serve down the tee and double fall. An unnecessary risk, I thought, from him. But still, Kyrgios' standard was incredibly high the first set, off the ground and on serve. And then aside from that one moment with Novak, his other service games were, were pretty good, you know, and he had some easy holds in there. So you, felt, you had the feeling he was still playing well. And then... Djokovic turns the corner in the second, and obviously we can talk, we'll get into the details more later about the key games in the second and third sets, but nonetheless, I thought they both fought, fought hard in those sets, and then just when you might think Nick down two sets to one would be forlorn and fretting it and, and just in such disarray that it's a 6-2 set, they both held serve really confidently all through the fourth set and it was settled in a tie break for Novak. So I thought it was really quite good. You know, I, I, I'd say slightly higher standard than say the Berrettini final a year ago, which was a good one as well. And uh, I thought Kyrgios 
held up emotionally surprisingly well, despite all of his unnecessary ludicrous exchanges with his camp in the stands. Because as you know, Nick, as you know, Gil, Nick seems to think that they're going to play the match for him. You know, (laughs) it's kind of crazy what he says and does and the language he needs to be careful. He's actually lucky he didn't get more warnings because there was a lot of pretty rough language thrown in there. And then, of course, the other incident with the umpire where he was upset with a woman in the crowd who he thought was drunk, who was yelling things at him. And he got too worked up over that because I could hear pretty well from where I was sitting. And it didn't seem to me that he had to get that. There had to be that much angst. But it, it, but I believe that he just has this trigger in him, Gil, where he feels like he's got to go after umpires. And, you know, it's not enough to go after his own honorage. He then wants to pick on the umpire somewhere along the line. He's going to give him a piece of his mind, whether he's right or wrong. Did you see it that way? Yes. And and I like that you said right or wrong because because I've seen both and I, I've seen him a lot of the times digging his heels into a cause that he is absolutely wrong on. It, yeah, it just yeah. seems it just seems he he needs to be upset about something always but I think the if you're able to separate what we were seeing between the points and what we were seeing during the points I agree with you that the performance from Kyrgios and the tennis that he played was as as good as as really you could have hoped yeah absolutely he didn't he wasn't reckless he played the percentages off the ground in the first set, especially really well. He served extraordinarily well in the fourth. And okay, there were a couple of critical moments in the second and third sets that cost him. And But I just thought his standard was high that he, and therefore he made Novak rise to a high standard. Because if Novak was going to be a little off and have a, a you know, a, a turn in a, say, a B-plus performance instead of an A, uh, he doesn't. Maybe he doesn't, maybe it's, he's in a fifth set or maybe he loses. So yes, I, I totally felt the way you did, what you just said, that despite all that stuff in between the points, once the point began, he was tuned in again and competing and playing pretty smart tennis. So I thought, I thought the fans really, obviously the fans would have loved a fifth and, and Novak was very wise to prevent a fifth by buckling down as well as he did in the four set tiebreak. But nonetheless, you know, you get a match going 7-6 in the fourth for a little over three hours. In the entire match, Djokovic breaks twice, Kyrgios once. That, to me, is a sign of clean, well-played grass court tennis. Agreed. So despite Kyrgios's best, Djokovic uh, wins in four. What stood out to you? What was most impressive about Novak's performance? Uh, I'll tell you, for me, it was the the matchup, the technical matchup that we were all looking forward to coming into the match, which is the Kyrgios serve against the Djokovic return. And Nick's a great server. It wasn't a dominant performance by Novak, but I did feel he he really did show that his return could largely neutralize what Kyrgios does on serve. And I felt that was the big difference between the first set that Kyrgios won and the next three sets was just the quality of returns that Novak was getting back. Oh, I could not agree more. I couldn't agree more. Nick was over 70% on first serves, and he still was under siege. Novak, yes, was aced 30 times by Nick. And you look at that stat and say, oh, my God. Well, I can tell you something. 
Gil, I honestly believe if it had been Agassi or any of today's great other great returners uh, who didn't have Novak's anticipation and reach, they would have been aced at least 40 times, maybe 45, the way Nick was serving. And that's that's the testament to what you're saying about Novak. It, it, yes, sometimes there were some really good aggressive returns where he guessed right and jumped on the return. A lot of times it was he had to lunge, but he could block, as he said later, he blocked those ones back. He blocked them back and he blocked them back deep. And there's just, you know, to me, that argument is, there's just no argument. I know Jim Courier keeps trying to push this notion that, and he has, who am I to disagree with Jim Courier? I love his analysis, but I do disagree with him on this. Rafa may have better return of serve stats, return of serve games, but the actual return itself, Novak, I think, is clearly superior because of the things that he can do, the range that he has, the combination of the aggressive returns with the block returns, and sometimes just somehow getting it back. Rafa, I don't think there's as much in his return game. He's just very dogged, and and that when he once he gets the return back, then he he finds a way to take control of the point later if he can. But to me, this was. This was proof of what Pete Sampras told me when I did the book with him on him, you know, the Pete Sampras greatness revisited. Forgive me for plugging it, but he went out of his way to say he thought that Novak had the best return he had ever seen. And he would have loved to have just had the chance to play him, to, to feel it, to see what it was like to experience that, what, what this guy could do on the return. And, uh, and I think that your analysis is spot on. Yeah, only broke him twice, but he made him worry. And there were a bunch of other games with either break points or deuce where he was getting into Nick's head, not in, not in a devious way, getting into his head just in the sense of, oh, my God, how does, the, how does this guy doing it? How is he getting those back? Why are those serves coming back? What's going on here? So that, that, was, that had real residual benefits to Novak in other parts of the match. And, and, it definitely, and then in turn, uh, Gil, then Novak was able after the first set and even the other service games in the first set, he had some incredibly easy holds and he ended up about 83% first serve points won. And that was after being a little lower in the first set, you know, it was 90% for the fourth set. And he, he backed up his, he placed his serve. Well, he backed it up. So well, to me, the other key element was just that, that old cliche that we keep coming back to about Novak in the lockdown mode, because once he got into a groove from the baseline after the first set, and he won a couple of crucial long rallies with, with uh, Nick early in the second when he was at one all, 30 all. He won a 23-stroke exchange and then another long rally that he ended with a drop shot winner. And I thought from that juncture on, he was almost, uh, he was just unwavering from the baseline. But, but he did it with a nice blend of offense and defense and just had Nick confounded about how he could possibly stay with him in the rallies. Did, did you see it that way? Yeah, and and I saw it in the Sinner comeback and the Nori comeback, where right. Uh, right. multiple times in this tournament, Novak got into a a point at, in the the level that he had on the court and the feel he had for his ground game, where he was literally not missing, <laughs> and uh, yeah. things were just were flowing for him. I, I want to ask you kind of about. Yeah. Gil, didn't you think that was also two against the Dutchman? I don't even want to try to... Uh, Von Von Reithoven, yes. Yes, same thing. Loses that set, and the guy sort of stunned him with the one break, and Novak almost broke back. And then in the third set, 
he suddenly, next thing you know, it's five love and he almost won the set six love. I mean, he was just phenomenal in the third set there too. So yes, all of those matches where he just would find a certain level, especially after losing a set. And then from that point on, because I, I didn't think Sinner played that badly the last three sets. I thought Novak was spectacular once he got his teeth into that match. Nori, not as good. I think Sinner's a better player. But even there, Novak was so nervous in the first set, which he lost 6-2, and then he came back so strong. And, and again, the, the way he was waltzing through his service games in all these matches was putting a lot of pressure on, 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 on his last three opponents because suddenly, you know, Novak's got a quick hold at love or 15 and you're back to serving again yourself and you feel, you feel the weight of, of, of his game. I didn't check for the Von Reithoven match, but I know Sinner, it was 82% first serve points one for Djokovic. Nori, it was 82% again. And yeah. curious, did you say it was 83? I thought it was 82 but maybe yeah, it was, it was not, 83. I, I, I thought I saw 83, but still, we're talking basically the same number, sure. you know. So and it's like, go ahead. To, well, to me, that that kind of makes sense because out of those three guys, I think Sinner, as far as first serve return points go, is the the most fit to, to try to yeah. get a better number. So come the final, I wasn't surprised that Novak was right up there against Nick with, with another great number. And he even said, it's interesting in, in light of what we're talking about right now, he did say in passing, he thought he could have served better. That may be in the final, that may be, but he couldn't have backed it up any better than he did. Yeah. I think he meant was there a few times like when he was trying to close out the, the uh, third set and he had 30 love and, and then Nick got back to 30 all. And there was some work from there where he wished he could have gotten a few more first serves in, but, but that's being maybe that sort of nitpicking at himself because I think overall the serve was very good. And then just the follow-up shots, the the purpose of every shot that he had in those rallies on his serve and how determined he was. I mean, in, the, in that sense, I thought it was more impressive than Wimbledon 2021, what, what he was doing in his service games and the, the utter control that he had of, of his own destiny. We'll talk about the key moments after this. We don't often think about Djokovic as a, a power baseliner. His power isn't really up there for the, the, the attributes that are most discussed with him. It, that's more of the case for Nadal or team or Vavrinka. But it almost looked to me in this match that Djokovic was overpowering Kyrgios in the baseline rallies. From the back of the court, he was hitting a bigger ball. And I, I want to know if, from your perspective, you saw that as well. I did largely, yes. I don't know if it was necessarily bigger. Nick's forehand was pretty big at times, but but I, I feel like his backhand, he steers it a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and Novak took advantage of that. And, and yes, he no doubt he got on top of the rallies with more pace because it was the combination of the two-way attack, the forehand and the backhand. Well, Nick didn't too often really drill the two-hander with, with extraordinary pace. So yeah, I do. I do agree with that. And, and I think in a lot of those matches, Gil, and I, I, I sense it from him this year, I sensed it when he played Carlos Alcaraz in Spain, that I watched the way he played the first set in that match. And you could see he respected Alcaraz's forehand, especially. So he upped the ante on his own forehand. Suddenly he's hitting his own forehand three, four five miles an hour faster and controlling it well. Very smart that way about knowing when he needs to do that. And he did that a lot at this Wimbledon to, to great benefit. 
Yeah, he certainly doesn't want to play how he used to at times and, and do the physical running, the 30-shot rallies that he right. used to be very, very happy and willing to do. Now he's much more likely to make an adjustment in his aggression levels and try to dictate more. Yeah, I just absolutely. And I just think he's also he's just more cerebral overall. You know, he's learned so much yeah. about capabilities and what he can do at a certain stage. And I think he's he's so thoughtful in, in the way in, in his match play approach. While the younger Novak didn't necessarily have to think that way. There were the long rallies that you mentioned. And then there were times when he was just knocking the cover off the ball, say, when he's playing Roger and not worrying about anything. So I, I, I enjoy watching this Novak more than that one. I don't, I don't know how you feel. You were so young when he started to peak, though, that, you know, it's more a matter for you of looking back. But I know how I felt at the time versus now. And I, I think this Djokovic is more enjoyable to, to watch. I, hmm, it's tough for me to say. What I will say is that's what I appreciate most about the big three. Um, out of everything else, like, and, and to me, that is why, that is why they're still winning, not because the generation, this generation is weak, which is a, a theory that's tossed around all the time, that they're mentally weak, that they're just not, now look, none of them have the greatness of, of any of the big three, but at the same time, the only reason Djokovic and, and Nadal and Federer were able to stay at the top through their mid thirties and their late thirties was because they changed, they adapted to to uh, to make up for their declining athleticism and physicality and they did it with their their tennis skills yeah I would say Gil that I would say it's maybe even more so true of Rafa and Novak than it necessarily is of Roger uh, because Roger always had that you always had the sense with him of of being the aggressor in the rally and taking Mm -hmm. the ball or ending points fast which uh, served him very well as he got into his later 30s so I, I feel like Maybe the other two changed a bit more than he, than he did. More, I agree. But but yeah. Roger, I think you mostly point to just the backhand and flattening that out and being uh, more aggressive right. with the drive, and that's right. the main thing that that comes to mind for him. Yeah, absolutely. Because he started to do that. Really, I'd say from 2014 on, that's when that came. So there'd been a period in say uh, 10, 11, 12, 13 where where the backhand seemed quite vulnerable at times. And you're right. Then he got the Changed the racket, and then starting in fourteen, we we really saw him coming over the back end much more confidently. You're right; that that was a change for sure. That was it, but that to me was more technical. And these guys are these guys are just they've added these dimensions to their game. And but where I'm in, in complete accord with you is that the knock shouldn't be on the guys today and what's wrong with them. It should be more look at look at what those guys have done to stay on top. Look look how they have pushed themselves and expanded their shot making repertoire i mean let let's give credit where credit is due yeah was the so djokovic is down love 40 trying to serve out the second set and he comes back and serves it out at us to to win the second set six three then in the third set it's four all well uh, let's just talk a little bit briefly before we go to the third set gil I thought he was smart. He he served a couple to Nick's forehand. I think Nick might have been expecting the serve go to Mortar's back. And it's hard to say because he got a couple of quick errant returns and he gets back to Deuce. And then Nick gets another break point when Novak just missed a forehand. And then on that fourth break point, Novak played a 
beautiful backhand drop. He was pulled a little wide uh, on his backhand side, and but he was moving forward and he saw the opening and he hit it beautifully, not too high over the net. And Nick, who had chased one down earlier, you know, for, hit a winner. This time, he there was no way he could make the play. Novak had the cross court covered and Nick hit into the net. And that, that was a crucial point. And I, I thought Novak showed a lot of poise to get out of that love 40, no doubt. And it was a very important game. And he said afterwards that, he thought in some ways that was the one that he thinks of more. He was more proud of himself for that necessarily than for breaking Nick in the third set. Well, let's go to that one now. Yeah. Well, I'll give a shout out to the, the next point, the deuce point. I thought the backhand down the line that Novak hit on the yeah. very next point was exceptional. And it was. Uh, Curios was going mostly cross court with his backhand, very little down the line. So Novak True. needed to create with his backhand, and, and yeah. he did in those spots. He did, and you're right about Nick, but then in turn, you know, uh, Nick missed a couple of crucial down the lines, which only discouraged him. Yeah. Uh, from, you know, and, and that happened again when Novak served the set out in, in the, at 5-4 at in the third after that break. But let's talk about the four-all game in the third. For this okay. reason, for this reason, Gil, Novak was very kind of modest about it. And he's essentially saying that Nick had given him that game. But I look back on those points and I'm not really entirely in accord because the first one, Nick serves in volleys. He has a high forehand volley that he can't quite put away. It wasn't that easy a volley. And Novak <clears throat> could have almost surrendered the point, but he made the dash over to his right and passed him down the line off the forehand. Okay, next time Nick comes in at, on the 40-15 on the point and Novak's pass is right at his feet. I mean, that was a tough volley. No way he makes that play. And then at 40-30, Novak hit a good deep return. And then on his, on his follow, on his next shot, he hit a forehand inside in winner, right inside the sideline that, that completely, uh, fro Nick was frozen. Couldn't believe the shot. So I look at those points and then, okay, then Nick double falls at deuce and he's shaken and then he misses a pretty easy back and a break point. But the points that Novak played, to bring himself back to Deuce, I think he should give himself a bit more credit for that uh, because uh, Nick didn't do anything really that wrong on those points. I agree. Now, Kyrgios is such a great volleyer that I, I think he he does expect to at least put away one of those forehand volleys. Um, there's nothing he could do on the 40-30 point. But then what I want to bring up towards the end of the game is I think we saw the way Kyrgios reacted to blowing that 40 love lead, Novak would have never reacted that way. It would, no, he, no. There would have been, there would have been composure. So that's, that's an area where, where Kyrgios is just not up to the, the level of his opponent on this occasion, because uh, the first ball, I mean, the double fall, you could kind of understand he's going for a ton on the second serve all the time. Uh, the the first ball backhand, it seemed like he was taking his anger out on the ball instead of trying to trying to hit a solid uh, first backhand. You're talking about uh, Nick. Yeah, I'm talking about Kyrgios's uh, backhand on forced error. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I it, he listen, he got rattled at forty. He figured he had the hold at forty eleven. He was really surprised. All I'm saying about from Novak's standpoint, he played heads up to get back to Deuce, and the and yeah. the yes. They Nick should put away the second forehand volley, but it was he didn't bungle it. He didn't hit it in the net or saying Novak still had to make the pass. And then the next one was at his feet. The next one was a really good pass at his feet. And then finally the winner. So I'm just saying Novak, 
was very poised to pull that off and then comes the double. And I, I frankly, I don't know if you remember those Nick Novak matches from 17 that, you know, where Novak had only the one break point and never broke them in Acapulco and Indian Wells. But I rem- the thing I remember most about those is whenever he would go for those second serve bombs, <clears throat> he kept making them. It was like he couldn't miss no matter how much he gambled, it was all there. He was loose. It was easy. These, you know, this is Acapulco and Indian Wells, no big deal, not a final. But sure enough, there were a couple of critical double faults. The one here at four, the, the one at four all in the third and deuce that we just talking about. And then, of course, the opening point of the four set tiebreak. So it, it, it does catch up to him from time to time. You know, it's just it's going to happen. And it happened to him at some critical moments there. Absolutely. Is there anything you want to talk about in the fourth set tiebreak or should we move on to uh, off this final? Well, no, I would say I thought what was interesting about the fourth set tiebreak. Yes. Nick goes for the down the tee for the second serve ace or closer to an ace and misses. All right. No, it can't be that critical. Then Novak is up to love and misses an easy forehand. His only unforced error of the entire tiebreak was when I thought that could be costly. Mm-hmm. But then what impressed me was the next two points. Nick got first serves in on both when he was serving at one, two and Novak really caught him with a deep cross court forehand return on the first. And Nick was really unprepared for it. And then on the next one, he did well to get it back. Novak, not that deep. And Nick tried to pull that back in cross court for a winner. And he, and he sent it wide, but you know, I just thought those, those, that was impressive that he could win two first serve points, return points in a row against. And I thought that kind of broke it open. And then from there, you know, next thing you know, it's six, one and he wins at seven, three. So uh, I did think it was it was it, it was an important. It was interesting to see the way they responded because it was a tiebreak that Nick had to win, uh, but it was one that Novak didn't want to lose, and and Novak was the one that was really bearing down hard and giving nothing away, and thought it was kind of a fitting ending, didn't you? In a strange way, that Novak would be the one to to be the the clear cut victor in the tiebreak. Because, you know, generally, you know, he, he's great in the tie breaks and he is again, he's been doing a good job in it this year again. And and the percentages favor him. And yes, a big server can, like Nick could be dangerous if he'd suddenly poured in three aces. But Novak, I just thought, played a really good percentage tie break and, and deserved it. Yep. And and the return really stood out to me again. Because yeah. it was it was already either 6-1 or 6-2 until Kyrgios made first serves that actually won him the point one of them he got a sitter on and then he hit a service winner and ace so i mean that that's trouble if you're curious you can't you need those cheap points early uh in the breaker or they you have to somehow hang in there without them but it's not going to be easy yeah but i also thought Djokovic had that sense of playing every point like it was match point in that tie break and when he got to six it wasn't until he got to Six one, he looked up at his camp. He didn't look up like I've got this, but he had that look like, okay, here we are. I don't yep. think he was ready to to relax until he got there because there's always that danger that Nick's gonna throw in a couple of great first serves and work as maybe one good return and work his way back. So I just thought it was it was sort of a fitting ending that fan, everybody would have liked a closer tie break, but I thought it was Djokovic reminiscent of those tie breaks against Roger. Uh, in, in the 19 final in the sense that he's just not giving not giving you anything and the one time he made the forehand error he immediately made up for it on the next two points with those two good first serve returns 
Moving on from the final, one more on Novak, unless he comes up later, always possible. Um, where do you think he's at emotionally now? Because the Australia experience in January was traumatic. He's spoken openly about how much that affected him. It doesn't go his way in Paris, but he talked about Wimbledon always being there for him. He becomes number one in 2011 after winning Wimbledon. Uh, he he kind of announces his his resurgence at Wimbledon in 2018. And then here again, Wimbledon is is here for him. But this time, the only the only thing in the background is that he might not be able to play in New York. Yeah, right. So, yeah, I think. I think that really mattered in the sense that when he spoke with such deep seriousness after his semifinal win over Nori about the final and the importance of the final, and I don't know how many more opportunities I'm going to have, so I want to win these. And you could tell how much, you know, I think part of his, yeah, and I, he didn't say it, but it's like, and I can't, I'm probably not going to be able to play the U.S. Open, so this could be my last major of the year, and who knows what's going to happen with Australia next year. So I think it became an imperative. And I think he would have been really disappointed with Rafa gone to not close within one again, you know, after Rafa surprised him by winning the first two of the year that had to be on his mind, you know, in addition to the obvious glory of winning a seventh Wimbledon tying Sampras and Renshaw and having a chance now to come back and tie Federer next year, if he can win it again. But yes, I think that was important. Now on the negative side, on the, on, on the sadder side, you, you know, you wish you could see him in New York coming off the confidence morale boosting win at Wimbledon to win that title. And after all he'd been through, as you said, I think he would have come to New York confident. And now it's just highly unlikely that he's going to be able to play. And, and I think he understands that he spoke that way. He said he hoped he'd get some good news, but I can't see that the CDC or U.S. government, I can't see a sudden change where they're going to say, oh, we're, we're more confident now because there's too many of the variant, the variants are out there. And I think they'd, they'd be too concerned about it. What I don't like, Gil, is that I, I just don't understand the notion that the American players can, that a tennis Sandgren or anybody else like him can be allowed. I, I think the USDA policy should be, we, we will not have any un, unvaccinated players. Be consistent. And, and, and they should include American players in that, in, in my view, because they're still going to be wandering around the grounds. They're still going to be in the locker room. So why are they less likely to be a, a potential health danger to other players uh, just because they happen to be an, an, an American? Yeah, it's a good point. I'm not sure what they're doing with fans this year and, and employees, right. which, which I will be an employee. I haven't heard anything um from from the usta regarding vaccination so i'm not sure it might that that all might be out the window but you're right it's it's a very strange situation that uh if you're an, if you're an american you are uh, still going to be able to play even though um if you're outside the country it's it becomes um a problem and i agree with you likelihood wise that uh it's it's looking unlikely in it, it's also a timing thing because when the cdc changes this eventually whenever they do it's not going to be an effective immediately they will they will set a date in the future so um clock, yeah, is, so bas clock is basically ticking and there's not a lot of time. running we're running out of time and i think he knows that and it shows you again which we discussed earlier in the year you know it's that you i wish that he didn't feel this way about the vaccine i wish that he 
would accept the fact that it's not going to do danger to his body and uh that and and there then we'd see him in new york on the other hand it it shows that he he's he's principled because in his mind this is not something he wants to do he's not becoming a crusader for anti-vax movement but he's just saying no i'm not changing my position and if i'm not if i'm not allowed to play i'll accept that that part i think is pretty honorable because uh people were trying to i think a lot of people felt back in australia in my case, in, in my, from my point of view, they felt it mistakenly that he was just trying to push his weight around, that it was like, I'm Novak, Novak, I'm Novak Djokovic, give me an exemption. <clears throat> I'm coming in there. Aren't you glad to have me back? And I don't think that was ever what it was about. It was like, okay, if you can get me in with an exemption, I, I would love that because I don't want to take the vaccine. And, and he's proving it here because he knows they don't have any exemptions in New York, but he still is saying, no, I'm not taking it. Yeah, he, he really has uh, gone quietly about his business as as much as possible. In Australia, it blew up, which, you know, he never would have wanted it to. Um, and we, yeah, you're right. We discussed this and both felt it was unfortunate how that situation was handled. And um, we, you know, the, the whole thing is a, a negative in, in a lot of ways, but but it's, it's the reality now. Uh, speaking of off the court matters, Looking back at this Wimbledon, unusual, strange for a couple of reasons. Let's start with the ban, and then we'll go to the points. What did you uh, What did you feel the tournament was missing outside of the very obvious answer to this question, which is uh, competitors uh, with the Russian and Belarusian ban? I mean, how do you uh, how do you digest that looking back at the tournament? Well, yeah. As far as the ban, the obviously the you know I, I I we we missed out on on Medvedev and Rublev were both dangerous in their way, particularly Medvedev. But on the other hand, he didn't really, you know, he played okay on the grass leading up. But he had a couple of surprising losses there. Kirkash beat him badly, and the Dutchman beat him, and he, yeah, he was missed. I mean, I thought about him from time to time, but then otherwise it didn't. And certainly with the men, it didn't make much of a difference. More so with the women, but. Uh, the points is what I kept thinking about. Uh, and okay. I thought to myself, Djokovic was very good not to complain about it in after the final, not that he was really asked much about it, but it just seemed so ridiculous that a guy would defend his title all 2000 points. And it's as if he never showed up, you know, he gets nothing. He does the 2000 points just come off. And I still don't understand, do not understand the ATP and the WTA there. They have some of the bright enterprising, really smart leaders, Steve Simon and Gaudenzi, WTA, ATP. I, and I think they felt that was the only way they could strike back at Wimbledon for a decision that they sharply disagreed with. But I don't, I just think they punished their own players. And in the end, of course, they didn't diminish Wimbledon. People were still as excited as ever about what happened at Wimbledon and it still got out in the history books the same way. But I think they've skewed the rankings. I mean, Djokovic is going to come out this year much lower than he should just based on these 2000 points alone. So he drops from three to seven after winning the biggest tournament in the world. It doesn't make a lot of sense. No, um, it, it certainly doesn't. Now I, I understand the points decision in, in one respect, which is that I get that if you, if they're sitting around and they're looking at Wimbledon's decision and thinking we have to do something, we can't allow a major event, 
to to not follow the entry rules and to discriminate based on nationality. And, and we just do absolutely nothing. So I understand how they felt like, like they needed to do something to protect their rankings and to kind of enforce their, their agreement between them and the slams that, okay, you're going to use our rankings and let everyone who qualifies into the tournament, into the tournament. What I would have liked them to do is freeze the 2021 points because it was a le perfectly legitimate and fair tournament where the entry rules were correct. And you already have the precedent of doing that during COVID of freezing points and extending them. So why not punish Wimbledon 2022 because it's not in compliance with the entry rules and freeze 2021 to in fairness to, to the players. That's an interesting point. All I would say though, Gil, is that you're still, you're still punishing the players. It's probably, it's less to me. It's less, it's a lesser evil. <laughs> it would be a lesser yeah. evil. But yeah, at least you would freeze those points from last year. You're right. But I don't want to see anybody that did well this year. Uh, I don't want to see them have their record, their points tarnished either. I just feel like in the end, what, I guess what I'm saying is I believe they could have just stuck with their statement. We disagree with Wimbledon because it was such a complicated decision for Wimbledon to decide what to do about the Russians and Belarusians. And it, it's also a unique worldwide crisis. The, the likes of which we haven't seen in, in so long. And, and, and I think they, they, they must have, I'm sure they wrestled with it before making the decision, Wimbledon. But in the end, I respected why, why they did it. And I think there was more divided opinion actually on that, Gil, than there was on the points, funny enough, that there were a lot of people felt that they kind of said they weren't sure where they would come down on whether to ban those players or not. But when it came to the points, I feel like most most people felt like no, don't don't do that. But yours yours would certainly have been preferable to this. I'll I'll I have to say that I will take yours over okay. what happened this year definitely. Nice. Uh, yeah, it, would, it, would, it still would have been interesting, right? Because you have a lot of players who actually expected to be hurt significantly by Wimbledon not having points, and turns out they didn't do as well as we expected. Felix Ojeda-Aliassime, Hubert yeah. Hercotch, who made the who made yeah. the uh, the semis, Berrettini, yeah. who was in the final. Now, yeah. All of them actually actually would have dropped all the points that they ended up dropping anyway. Um, so so that that was surprising the way that played out. And instead, you you have players like like Kyrgios and Cameron Norrie, and on the women's side, especially um, with like a Tatiana Maria or a Yule Niemeyer. You know, yeah. they should they should be shooting up the rankings. Yeah. after this Wimbledon and and they won't yeah and interesting I was I, I was fascinated by the fact that you didn't hear a lot of talk a lot of complaining and uh, any harping on it from the players either the men or the women and Djokovic could easily have brought it up but he didn't I don't I, I think he just didn't want to come off as being petty he's just won the title he doesn't want to sound like he's now suddenly you know uh, being critical when when it all worked out well for him on every other level but He's definitely the one that gets harmed the most, you know, sure. when you, and, 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 and it could end up meaning that he doesn't, although I guess he could get, they talked about it though. He could still get into the year end championships by winning a, a grand slam title. So it, it might still work out that he makes it to, to the year end championships, but this would have pretty much sealed the deal. Yep. Yeah. That'll be interesting to, to follow. Um, and, and yeah, you're right. The players, 
I think we kind of had a sense of that immediately that they were all going to play. I mean, prize money is big. The glory of, of Wimbledon is, is also big. And uh, it felt, it seemed like a, like a no brainer. I mean, the interesting thing, I think if, if the players weren't getting paid, I think maybe they'd stay home, but I think that's what it would take. Yeah, no, they, the prize money was great. The only player who seemed to really refer to the points was initially at, to, to use it as an out was Naomi Osaka before right. she before she withdrew with the injury. But she, her initial statement was, well, if they're not going to have any points, you know, that and that I found that very disappointing at the time because here's somebody who's won four majors who should know better than to talk that way, in my view, because, uh, you know, it's, it's about much more than the points, which is why Djokovic in the end just focused on that. But I thought I, I didn't like it when Naomi said that. And Fortunately, I, I worried that it was going to be, you know, her influence could carry over to other players. But then I never heard any other players really talk that way, fortunately. Yeah, that was bizarre. I mean, her desire to play, I think, is just lesser than than a lot of other players in general, which is what maybe that comes down to. Yeah. Um, let's uh, let's hit on Rafa. Unfortunate tear in the abdominal muscle. Really something that I think. My, my read on it is that he, he said it got, it was the worst day by far on the day of the Fritz match and during the Fritz match, but right. it was something he was feeling throughout, throughout the event. Um, how well do you think Nadal was, was playing, you know, before the Fritz match? And that was a, in itself an incredible and epic battle and, and performance by Nadal to essentially win without his serve. Uh, but Definitely, there's a feeling that that Nadal and, and Djokovic were the, the front runners, and it would have been Nadal meeting Novak in the final if he were healthy, I would think. Yeah, I mean, we're, obviously, we're never going to know. Well, how would a healthy Nadal have done playing Kyrgios? Uh, we're never going to know. It was going to be a, you know, it was going to be a match that was never going to be easy for him to win. Although I have, must say, I would have probably favored him, just you know, because I would have felt like it would have been similar. They had those two matches at Wimbledon through the years. And then 14, when Nick beat Rafa, he won a couple of tie breaks. Then it was reversed in 19, where Rafa won a couple of tie breaks and he won in four. I would have seen something more like that, but we're never going to know. You asked, how was he playing? I thought he was playing okay, pretty well prior to, to Fritz. And then it was almost miraculous that he got out of the Fritz match because not only the serve, which you mentioned, you know, where he had to completely, uh, completely redo it remake it just to be able to spin it in at 102 miles an hour and but in turn he was slicing a lot of back ends I felt like he didn't want to really drive the two-handed that I feel that that was probably hurting the abdominal to hit the two-handed back end because he went to the slice a lot and then finally toward the end of the match we saw some more two-handed drives but uh it was unfortunate but the way I look at it is that he, he, it's so phenomenal what he achieved in Australia after all those months away and the fact that the foot did not act up again there and he somehow, with not great preparation, just one small 250 event in Melbourne, he, he wins the Australian so much against the odds. Hadn't won it since 09, so there'd been a 13-year gap. Then he comes to the French and, and we discussed that at great length with all the injections and it didn't look good going into Paris either and he wins that. And then he does the procedure to get him ready for Wimbledon so he can't play any grass court tournaments leading up to Wimbledon. So I think it just finally caught up to him. And, you know, it's a, a, 
it's unfortunate he hasn't had this injury. He had this injury once at the at the Open in 09, U.S. Mm-hmm. Open nine, and he, where he got beaten two two and two by Del Potro in the semis before Del Potro beat Federer in a five set final. And so, but this isn't an injury he gets too often. But it was one that was not manageable, and that's the sad part. There wasn't much he could do when he found out what, how the size of the tear the next day and. And it was clear to him in practice the next day that he was, again, not going to be able to serve properly if he played Nick. And that just must have been really dismaying to him because he wasn't going to be able to bluff his way past Nick the way he did against Taylor. That was extremely gutsy. And and Rafa just manufactured that win as only he could and was fueled by the crowd. And he just found a way to get it done. And his forehand was still very effective. But he wouldn't have beaten Nick in that condition and he knew it. So, but I think all things considered Gil, he's got to feel pretty good that he got two of the first three and found a way to win a really memorable pulsating encounter against Fritz and be a semifinalist and not actually go out on the court and lose. So it wasn't (laughs) as long as he can recover for the U S open, which I think he will now. Right. Yeah. I think that's the key. And Wimbledon felt like a house money tournament for, for Nadal, I think it would have been a fascinating mental dynamic if if he met Djokovic in the final, because I I favor Djokovic's technical capabilities on a grass court surface. But I also felt that mentally Rafa had the potential to play freer than than Djokovic because so much was on the line for Novak. So that's what no. I would have been really interesting interested to see. Yeah, no, it's a good assessment. And I think it, it would have made it the early stages. It might well have played out a little bit like the Kyrgios final. Novak might have been tight early on. But I have suspect that he would have eventually found his range and won. We're never, it's too bad. It would have been fun to watch. Yeah, for sure. It would have been for the fans really enticing. But uh, I, I agree. There, it, Rafa would have had the sense of saying, I haven't beaten him off of clay since 2013. This is a but I, I'm going to go for this. This is going to be fun. I'm going to enjoy this. And, and Novak would have felt a certain burden, but I also think Novak would have so badly wanted to avenge the loss from Paris too on, on, on his court now, back on his court, that eventually I think he would have gotten it done in four or perhaps five sets. And too bad we didn't get to see it, I, I agree, because we're certainly, it's, it, we're almost surely not going to see them play in New York. We don't know if we'll see them play in Melbourne next year. It could be quite a long time before we see them meet again in a major. Yeah. I want to end with a couple of uh, legacy questions. First, Nadal, because we're on him right now and talking about the injuries. He has, uh, he's missed 12 majors since the start of his career. He's now withdrawn or retired in in five i actually sold him i did a a show earlier this week and i sold him one short um that's a that's a significant amount of of health issues and that's not to mention matches like you alluded to in 2009 against del potro when he had the ab tear and and he finished the match and it just goes down as a, a plain old regular loss i think you know nadal fans and this is how it is with with the the warring fan bases sometimes they try to spin this as a positive. Well, this is proof that Rafa of Rafa's greatness because he wins despite all that. I think that's true, but at the same time, you know, injuries, injuries are also kind of part of the the sport and, and staying healthy is, is a part of what you do, right? Nobody says, Oh, Borna Chorich is actually 15 in the world because that's what he would be had he not been hurt 
or Hyun Chung is actually this good. No, right? Like injuries are, it, it's part of your, your ability to succeed as, as a pro. So at which Nadal, of course, has despite the injuries. So how do you reconcile Nadal's legacy as it pertains to all of the health issues that he's had? Well, I, I have to say I'd probably come down more on, that, on, the camp, on his camp and what you're talking about. I don't think it's all spin for this reason. He never thought he'd be around at 30, much less uh, uh, 36, you know. I mean, and the fact that he could come out, out of a situation like last year, which was so discouraging at the time to lose that match at Novak in, in, the, in the French and then not play Wimbledon and try to come back on the hard course, play one, a couple of, ma- two matches in Washington, and then he's gone and uh, gone for the year. And then to come back and win the first two majors of this year. So I would say, yeah, you mentioned those 12, majors but that's over a long long span that's going back really if you look at it essentially to 05 you know he played before 05 but let's say that was the first year he was a real contender he won his first French that year his first major so I say that uh that he that it's not that big a deal that he would miss that many when he's played on for so many more years than he could ever have anticipated and here he finds himself still one major ahead of Novak Djokovic in the, in the race for all time grand slam supremacy. So I I think he, I think he would take it and, you know, and say, okay, look, a lot of things happened to me and a a lot of different injuries. And, but, but look where I am. And and we may have him around Gil for a couple more years. I wouldn't be that shocked. Everybody's speculating about, is that his last Wimbledon match? I'd say the odds are it's not his last Wimbledon match. Yeah, I agree. I I don't get that speculation because as long as when he is on court healthy, he is contending for major titles. He's not going to stop. I mean, uh, I I can't see him stopping when he's when he's doing so much winning like this. Um, And 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 he was trying to play his way into some decent. As I say, I don't think he was playing that great in those matches prior to Fritz, but he wasn't playing badly either. And you wouldn't know that he hadn't had any grass court preparation. You know, he hadn't been on grass since 19 Wimbledon when he lost to Federer in the semis. And yet you wouldn't have known it. He was adapting pretty well. And, and uh, you know, if, he, if it hadn't been for the ab, maybe he, had, he would have been in the final. So, so you're right. And he also is able to cut, do it after longer stretches away. When he was younger, he panicked about being away for any length of time. He thought he absolutely had to be playing constantly. Now he knows he doesn't have to. So... No, I expect that we're going to see him at least through next year. And frankly, I think we could well see him through 2024. Yeah. Um, regardless of, of what it means for, for Nadal's legacy, um, I, I mean, it's just remarkable that he is able to go through these rehabilitation processes, which are very difficult mentally on on players and it's it's hard and it requires pain tolerance and suffering and and he is willing to do it over and over and over again because that's how much he loves the sport and that's how how hard a worker he is so i mean i'm full of admiration for what he does yeah absolutely and this was proof of your point is that you would have thought okay granted he didn't want to give up the chance of going for the grand slam (laughs) excuse me you know, so, okay, in a way, he sort of had to play Wimbledon, but look what he was willing to go through after everything he'd been through with the foot and the, the, all the, all, you know, the combination of the injections in Paris followed by this ablation procedure and to get him ready for Wimbledon. That, that was, that was, he has, seems to have an endless tolerance for whatever he has to do 
as long as there's light at the end of the tunnel. And he's found that light so many times. Yeah, and it goes with how he plays on the court, you know, the never give up attitude that he brings to, to his tennis matches as well. He does. And, and also the fact that he's, you know, he became a much better fast court player. You know, you look back to the early years when he was really excelled so much on the clay and then he got, he started to improve on the grass and then his hard court game improved. And now here he is with four U.S. Open titles, but he plays so much more aggressively. Uh, he has, you know, say from his mid to late 20s on than he ever did from 19 to say 27. So that's also served him well because it can get him through matches a bit quicker, you know, faster points and the serve also improved a lot too. So we haven't seen the last of him. Let's put it that way. Mm. Djokovic passed Federer here with, with his 21st major. It's a storyline that uh, went very under the radar, uh, I guess, just because he's second still. Um, so I, I guess people didn't care about it as much. But uh, I, I want to, um, to see what, what you thought of this. Joel Drucker, uh, who, who is a friend of yours as well, um, was saying that this basically ends the uh, data and numbers-driven argument that Roger was a, a better player or is a better player than Novak. That in order to make that argument, you now need to kind of leave the realm of numbers and complete objectivity. Uh, I mean, I'm curious if you also see it that way. Yeah, essentially, I do. I do. I think that, you know, you, you, the, the Roger fans would counter with the, his, that he had a certain, that he had this consistency during his prime years that maybe even Novak or Rafa never quite matched in that he had it, he made it to 36 quarterfinals in a row at the majors and 23 semifinals in a row at the majors, which was remarkable. On the other hand, I just think that in the end, it's much more about, you know, we can look at Rafa's incredible consistency of staying in the top 10 in the world. And Novak has, has a similar enduring consistency. So there's not, it doesn't really work. And the other problem for Rogers, he's down to Novak in the rivalry, 27-23, and he's down 24-16 against Rafa. So they both have the winning records against him head-to-head. And then, so now he's behind Novak, one major behind, and it's highly unlikely that Roger can win another. So, yeah, I do agree with Joel. You know, from that standpoint, the, the argument for Federer from his fans is going to be that at his very best, they, they might feel that he could have beaten either one when he, but, but I don't know if that necessarily holds up. You know, I, it, you could say it, you know, that in his prime years, he did have a wonderful run there from 04 to 07 of winning 11 of the 16 majors. And it just was, you know, he was untouchable there for a while, but that was before Nadal. Nadal had not reached the level he would reach later on the faster surfaces and Novak certainly had not. Uh, Novak was just coming along then, you know, and getting to his first major final against Roger in 07. So the bottom line is, I do agree. I think the debate will still rage on about all three, but I, I think almost inevitably now the discussion will come down much more to Rafa versus Novak than with Roger being seen as the slightly less accomplished member of the trio, which is really astounding when you think about the amount of, the number of years people talked about him as the greatest of all time, with good reason. It is astounding. Um, 
and and with the Federer thing about his prime in the in the mid 2000s, then it becomes like other sports where you, you debate who is who's better, LeBron or Jordan, and you'll never get to see those players uh, compete against one another at the same time. It's so much easier for Nadal and Djokovic being one year apart in age, but um, for for yeah. Federer, we, we won't we'll we'll never see two two thousand seven Federer against. Uh, oh, against you're Djokovic. right. You're right, and also. There's nothing you can do. I mean, I know the Federer fans would would try to argue that Novak beating Roger in the 2014, 15, and 19 Wimbledon finals is when Roger's passed his prime. But Roger would not have been in those finals. Roger would not have had two match points against Novak in 19 or beaten Rafa in the semis or turned this, had his biggest success against Rafa in this same period when he started losing more and more to Novak in those years. So I, I, I don't think that argument works very well either because Roger was playing some great tennis in that span. And still Novak in the end had, had his number and Novak has now surpassed him in majors. So it, it, it's fascinating. I, 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 I want to see it. it I, I got a feeling that in the end, we might see a tie between Djokovic and Nadal because I don't know if Rafa's won his last French and I don't think Novak has won his last major. So I think they 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 each are gonna get on the board a few more times. Man, a tie! That what a world that would be. That would be that would be pretty interesting to see. Uh, it would be great. I would love a tie if, if we're being honest. Um, Steve, looking forward to to seeing you at the U.S. Open. Happy that that we're both gonna be there. Uh, we'll catch up then, and and we will discuss uh, afterwards. As always, thanks again yep. for coming on. Yeah, looking forward to it, and uh, and we'll grab a sandwich somewhere along the line in New York in, in the middle of the open. Sounds good.